Hello, and welcome to episode number 114 of the Dear Bitches Smart Authors Podcast, known on iTunes if it ever gets its act together as the DBSA Podcast. I know some of you have been having trouble finding it on iTunes and in other feed locations since we moved to a new server, and we are so working on that, and iTunes is so unhelpful I can't even tell you. Like, I resubmitted the podcast feed to iTunes, and basically the response was, no. And that's it. Like, seriously, iTunes, what? Anyway... When I am not frustrated by iTunes, I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me today is Carrie Cicerigo, who reviews for Smart Bitches and also for her own site, Geek Girl in Love, and whose writing is also appearing in a bunch of different interesting locations, which I'll be featuring this week. We're going to talk about the badass Victorian women that she has been reading and researching, including travelers, scientists, inventors, and spies. Basically, she does a presentation called Victorian Women Who Out Steampunk Steampunk, and it's awesome. We also do a discussion about what she's read recently and enjoyed, including a micro but thorough review over the podcast of Carrie Elwes' memoir, As You Wish. This podcast is brought to you by Berkeley, publisher of Romancing the Billionaire, the sizzling new billionaire boys club novel from New York Times bestselling author Jessica Clare. I will have information at the end of the podcast about it. And now, on with the podcast. So we are here to talk about Victorian ladies, because you did a whole presentation about them, yeah? Yes, I did. Uh, I've done it now. I've done it a couple of times. I, I, when I planned the presentation, I broke it into four parts. So that turned out to be really handy because some people just want one part. So I've, I've done some variations on it. Right. Yes. So what you talk about is Victorian women who out steampunked steampunk. Yeah, that was kind of how it got started. So I I broke it down in categories of inventors, scientists, travelers, and spies. And what was so cool about it was that I really thought that I would find like maybe, you know, like just a few women in each category, right? So Mm -hmm. like inventors, okay, I got Ada Lovelace, scientists, oh, I know a couple, you know. I, I really thought there wouldn't be that many. And and it ended up being this like epic research project that will never ever end because it turns out that there were like hundreds like probably thousands of Victorian women doing all kinds of amazing kick butt things so this idea of the angel in the home which was this very popular Victorian idea it it turned out that a lot of Victorian women didn't really have a lot of patience with that and they just went off and did what they wanted to do whoa yeah I I don't know anyone who's like that now in this era Oh, not at all. Nobody. Mm-mm. Oh, no, no. It was really exciting. And when I do the presentation, I'm always trying to kind of give that as the point where I'm like, the, the takeaway isn't that I would expect people to remember any one particular person that I talk about. I want people to look at history with a broader lens than we've been handed so to to look at history and see that so much more was happening than the stereotype that we're presented with. It was really fun to put together. So which are the women that are most interesting to you? Like, tell me about some of the people you researched and that you talk about in your presentation, because this is really cool. Okay, cool. Okay, well, so some of the women I talked about were pretty obvious, like Ada Lovelace, okay? Who doesn't like to talk about Ada Lovelace? She developed a program for Charles Babbage's analytical engine. Um, and so she is often known as the mother of computing. 
uh, she, and a lot of people know about her. But then when I was looking up her, I found a lot of uh, female inventors, including a lot who were women of color, which is another thing that I talk about a lot. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Are you trying to tell me that there were people of color during history? Oh my gosh, there were! No, 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 no. Uh, how to ha ha here. Um, so it wasn't just wall-to-wall -wall white people? It wasn't just wall-to-wall -wall white people. Are you it, sure? Even You're fucking with me, aren't you? There they were just walking around London, Sarah. Are you serious? I'm serious. You mean like they are right now, people of color in the world? Yes! No. Yeah, they were really there. Yeah. So speaking and, of history that we've been handed. Right. Oh, and you know what? Not what? only are they walking around England and walking around America, but they weren't all like working as maids or whatever. They were doing all kinds of awesome things. Oh, just stop it. No. <laughs> like, Please go could, on. This is so cool. You could hang up on me, but I would just keep calling you back. <laughs> yeah. This is Carrie. It was, it calling was from history. Awesome <laughs> to find this stuff out. There, yeah. So, Tell me about these people you, you learned about. Uh, a lot of people already know about Madam Walker, whose real name was Sarah Breedlove. So she was an African-American woman in America. She was the first child to be born in her family free. And she's this, like, rags-to-riches story, okay? So she started off, she was an orphan when she was six. She was married at 14. She was widowed at 20. She went to work as a washerwoman. She was making no money at all. But she started inventing hair products, and she became the first self-made African-American millionaire. Not the first female millionaire, the first millionaire, period. Whoa. Like a boss. So she's more well-known as a businesswoman than as an inventor, but what started her business was the products that she invented. And they were, I'll tell you what her first five were, they were... Madam Walker's Wonderful Hair Grower, Temple Solve, Tetra Solve. Tetra is like a, a skin disease that people used to get. Tetra. Yes. Yeah. If you, if you ever see the advertisements for Blue Star Ointment, it will say, Jock itch, Ringworm, Psoriasis, Tetra. Oh my gosh. I have not seen that, but I believe it. Vegetable Shampoo and Glossine. That's the other one. So she got interested because she had brothers who were barbers and her own hair started falling out. And hair loss in the Victorian era was really common because um, hair can fall out because of stress and it can fall out because of malnutrition. And also a lot of the shampoos included lye. So every time you washed your hair, you were basically killing all your hair and it would fall out of your head. So she was like, the heck with that. So she got some lessons from her brothers and then she went off and invented these hair products. And then she paired that with this incredible business savvy. And she built this massive business empire. And then she used her money to fund all these civil rights activities later in her life. I knew a lot about her growing up because she lived in Pittsburgh. And she, oh. was, she was part of my Pittsburgh history, particularly during um, Black History Month. Cool. So she, she's very awesome. Now, in contrast to Madam Walker, we have a woman. And I'm so sorry because I can't pronounce her last name. But her name was Ellen... E-G-L-U-I. Egli. E-G-L-U-I? Yeah. I would, be, I would guess that that's 
Egloui. Egloui, that would make sense. Ed or Eloui. Well, you skip she, the G. She is an example of what happened to a lot of women, whether they were of color or not, in terms of having trouble translating their inventions into money because of societal constraints. So she invented the first clothes ringing device for a washing machine in 1888. Uh, I have no memory, so I have to look at my notes every time I say a number. And um, she ended up selling the patent rights for $18 because she said that she didn't believe that white women would buy the product if they knew it was invented by a colored woman. So she sold it to a white guy so he could sell it to white people. For eighteen dollars, eighteen bucks, which and is like four hundred dollars in our money. Oh, I have no idea, but it's very similar to what we still have in our washing machines now. So not what it was worth, basically, and that's the last we heard of her. Like she kind of floats up into history, and she says this like one thing, and then she floats back out. We wow. don't know when she was born or when she died, and you know, and that's. That's very representative in a way of what happened with a lot of women, particularly because until the late 1700s, women weren't allowed to own patents under their name. So a lot of women inventors uh, are, are lost to us. We don't know who they were because they had to either not file a patent at all or file it under their husband's name. And it's interesting how many of those inventions are still in use, like the clothes ringer is, 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 is still in use. And I think the original invention for the brake of the elevator, the elevator brake oh. to make it stop, is still yeah. the basic function of how elevators stop. I, I once watched a documentary on elevators, and I'm telling you, it changed my life. I just thought it was the most interesting thing. But then again, I am the kind of person who watches documentaries on elevators. Tell me more, tell me more, because this is cool. Okay, okay, well, do you want me to keep talking about inventors, or should I branch on? Branch on, girl. Okay. Bring it. You should know that my full presentation is like two hours long, and I don't think we want to do that. So, okay. Somebody just totally looked at their at their iPod and went, yes, do that, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will, too, on the slightest provocation. Ooh, let's talk about travelers. Okay, so this presentation is so fun to do. Like, really, just Google, people. Just Google. I I would put in one name, and 14 other names would come up. So I, I was looking up women who went to Tibet. I was like, you know, that's interesting. And I found this woman, Annie Royal Taylor. And I'll talk about her some more. She was kind of fun. But... Because I was looking up Annie Royal Taylor, I accidentally discovered Annie Edison Taylor, who is, is no relation. It's a coincidence. Annie Edison Taylor is the first person to survive going over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Not the first woman, the first person. She did it in 1901, and she did not enjoy it. Uh, but she did it, and she was not significantly injured. She was in her 60s, but she told people she was in her 40s. So wait, and she didn't enjoy it. She survived, and she was in her 60s and just decided, today's the day I go over Niagara in a barrel. The day. No, she put more thought in with that. She, she was hard up for money, and she figured if she could survive going over the falls in a barrel, she could make money by, like, talking about it, you know, at different places afterwards. She's not wrong. Well, actually, she was kind of wrong. She never no. did off of it, unfortunately. But she had this barrel specially constructed, and it was padded, and then this was her big trick. She had her, they had bicycle pumps by 1901. 
So she had her friends, she got in it, and then they compressed the air inside with the bicycle pump. So it would float. So it would, I guess. So she she did, and, and also I wonder if that would make her less likely to like move around so much. So she went over the falls, and when she came out, they opened the barrel, they let her out, and she said, no one ever ought do that again. This is totally a person who was wrong, but born in the wrong era. Because if she was born now and she did that now, she'd have her own fucking reality show within like 12 minutes. I know. And that was basically her plan, right? Because people used to do this kind of touring circuit. So it was like the Victorian version of the reality show, right? I'm telling you, she would have had her own show on TLC. Right. You go and give lectures and stuff. but And she did do that, but it wasn't as lucrative as she had hoped. She used to say that she and she wasn't like a big adrenaline junkie. And she used to say she would rather stand in front of the mouth of a cannon than go over the falls again. So don't go over Niagara Falls, people. In a barrel. In a barrel. Or not in a barrel. Yeah, because then, of course, I got sidetracked and I ended up Googling people who go over Niagara Falls. And so I think I'm going to stick with my my broader assertion, just don't go over Niagara Falls. Uh, this just has been a public service public announcement from Carrie Sergo. Public Sergio. service announcement. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like, so I put her in the traveler's category. She didn't travel very far. I would say she did. She traveled straight but, down. Right. But it was a really impressive trip. Yeah. So I found all these Victorian women who traveled and... Uh, uh, one of the things that was kind of cool is just recreational traveling, just like being a tourist, was made possible for women, and the particularly in the late Victorian. Mm-hmm. So they would like go all over like England and stuff and have a lot of fun. But there's this one woman who I got really attached to. So her name was Isabella Bird. She's pretty well known, and I adore her because I am four foot ten. And I have not been able to find out exactly how tall Isabella Bird was, but she is always described as, quote, just under five feet, unquote. So she's so, like your, your, like your, your Patronus. She's, in, she's, your, and she's your historical Patronus. Yes. And, and like me, she had a terrible back. She had all these horrible back problems. However, unlike me, uh, I have not emulated her in this way. She was told by the doctor to get fresh air. So she translated that as, I should travel all over Colorado on the back of a mule and ride 800 miles, much of it in the winter, and hook up with this mountain man who I will describe in my letters as the kind of man any woman might love, but no sane woman would marry. Whoa. She- <laughs> yeah. Hello, romance novel. There's a lot of subtext in her memoirs. But she just- didn't like Australia. She didn't like Australia? I don't remember her not liking Australia. Yeah, the notes I found just say she didn't like Australia. Oh. She didn't like Australia. Oh, oh, Isabella. So here's <laughs> okay, so I've got this whole list of countries that she went to. And it's really exhausting. England, Scotland, North America, Canada, Australia. She didn't like Hawaii, Colorado, Japan, Korea, China, Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia, India, Persia. Kurdistan, Turkey, uh, she traveled between Baghdad and Tehran, China, Korea, and Morocco. Plus, obviously, she went all over the UK. Whoa. And every time she went home, she got depressed and sick again. So she'd go back out, you know, for the fresh air. Yes, all over yeah. the world. Yeah. Wow. I should have listened to our last podcast because now I can't remember who I talked about. Did I talk about Isabella Bird last month? No, I don't think so. Oh, good. Okay, because, like, I totally love her. 
so yeah, so she she was just a nut. So she did all the stuff. But one of the other things that was kind of interesting and a little bit sad was that a lot of these women, like if you read about their lives from this sort of modern lens, you make assumptions about them and you think, well, she must have been like a huge feminist, right? But a lot of women were able to do these crazy outlandish things as long as they sold them just right. Mm -hmm. So Isabella Bird did not describe herself in particularly feminist terms. And she would say that she really felt that the role of the woman was to be the angel in the home. But tragically, tragically, she had these ailments and she needed the fresh air. Right, of course. Right. But she wasn't really going out and saying, see, I can do it. Everyone could do it. We should all do it. Except in as much as she said she thought it was good for Victorian women to go out into these unsettled places because they would bring a gentle influence to <clears throat> these mountain guys who no sane women would marry. Of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah. But it's it's, and you see that sometimes with the scientists, too, the way they write about their work for publication. They'll be very careful in how they word things. So they're sort of... You know, they, they kind of come up with these little PR campaigns. Um, unless they're a woman like Gertrude Bell, who just, like, didn't give a rat's ass and just did whatever she wanted because she was just boss. Uh, oh, and we have soldiers and spies. We have Loretta Janetta Velasquez. I think I talked about her last time. Uh, she served in the Civil War dressed as a man. And then she did some spying dressed as a woman, and then she did some more spying dressed as a man, and she just, like, ran around all over the place and had a great time. Nice. Uh, uh, Harriet Tubman. We all know that Harriet Tubman is badass. That's not news. But she led a gunboat raid, which I thought was pretty awesome, and I did not know that. During the Civil War, she worked for the Union, obviously. And you she say. As a spy and a scout, uh, mostly in South Carolina and in Florida. And then she ended up leading a gunboat raid up the, I'm going to mangle this pronunciation, Combahee River. She is considered the first woman to lead an armed assault in the Civil War. Uh, she guided three steamboats upriver and around mines. The raid freed over 750 slaves, many of whom joined the Union Army. Yep. In her spare time, she was a nurse when she wasn't leading gunboat raids. Right. Or like, like you do. Helping people to freedom, you know, she was busy. She was really busy. But I was like, wow, I already knew she was really badass, but I did not know about the gunboat raid. That's pretty amazing. Uh, and uh, the Crimean War, of course, was a pretty rocking time for women. Whenever there's a war, women get to do things that normally men would do. So in the Civil War, there's all these stories about men fighting as soldiers um, leading medical teams, being nurses, but not in the sense that they were just like a nurse, but in the sense that they were in charge of like thousands of people. Um, and in the Crimean War, we all know about Florence Nightingale, but there was also a woman named Mary Secourt who was a black woman from Jamaica. Oh my gosh, it's another woman of color. How did she get here? And she was also a nurse who was helped, you know, thousands and thousands of people. She didn't introduce any medical innovations, which Florence Nightingale is kind of really well known for transforming nursing practices. Um, but she helped probably save the lives of like thousands of men. I mean, she was amazing. I like, I could just talk all day, but I don't know who you want me to talk about. I've got to narrow it down. So you have 
soldiers. Yes. Travelers. Yes. Inventors. Oh. And what was the science. fourth one? Science. Yeah, let's do science. 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 Uh, okay, let's talk about Mary Anning because I like Mary Anning. Uh, Mary Is there anybody on this list that you don't like? Oh, I like all of them. Okay, I was going to say. Okay, but there are people who I would not have liked in real life. Like, I have a feeling that Isabella Bird would probably have annoyed me in real life. Hmm. Um, one of the travelers, remember I started talking about Annie Royal Taylor, not the one that went over Niagara Falls, but the one that went to Tibet? Mm -hmm. Her claim to fame is that everybody hated her. She really? was so freaking irritating. <laughs> hated her. But, you know, like, she got stuff done. But she, she also got in her own way. So she, she, to an extent, she didn't get stuff done. She started a mission, but the missionaries that she hired basically, like, turned around and rebelled and got rid of her, fired her, because they hated her. She, um tried to get into the Forbidden City in Tibet, uh, and she couldn't get there, and her guide eventually quit because apparently he thought he was a Tibetan man, and she, he thought of him, himself as her partner, but she thought of him as this, like, quote-unquote native servant guy, so she talked down to him all the time, and then she became convinced that he was trying to murder her, and apparently he'd have to get in the back of, like, a really long line. She was just the most irritating woman possible. Whoa. But she's really fun to read about. You know, like, if you don't have to talk to her day to day, <laughs> I mean, her, she, she shaved her head and dressed as a Tibetan nun so that she could travel Tibet without getting caught. Uh, you know, you, you, gotta, you gotta love that, right? She was another person who had ill health as a child and was described as frail. Mm-hmm. So if you were frail, you were supposed to get fresh air, and that meant you would shave your head and, you know, wander around Tibet. Wow. Or if you were Ada Lovelace, you were described as frail, and you stayed in bed all the time, and while you were in bed, you studied math. Right. Right. Does anyone so, know exactly what killed Ada Lovelace? Because she died very young. She was in her early 30s, right? Yes, she had cancer. She had cancer. She had cancer, yeah. Okay, so Ada Lovelace had this whole, like, complicated family history, right, where her... She was the only legitimate child of Lord Byron, and her mother, who was divorced from Lord Byron, hated Lord Byron. So Ada never met her father. But she really idolized the idea of him because she hated her mom. Her mom was really controlling, and her mom's big plan was that Ada was, by golly, not going to grow up like her dad. So no poetry, by gum. Ada was going to learn math, math and science, math and science. So because Ada, those aren't poetic at all. No, right. not in the least. What? So Ada's whole biography basically is she fights with her mom, they make up. She fights with her mom, they make up. She fights with her mom, they make up. And one of the weird things that happened during one of these fights is that Ada started designing a flying machine. And then at some point it must have become evident that she wasn't going to build the flying machine. And suddenly she was stricken with this ailment which caused her to be almost completely paralyzed and almost completely blind. And she was incapacitated for a long time, months and months and months. Whoa. I can't remember exactly how long. But I don't think anybody knows what that was. Was it a physical ailment? Was it a reaction to like a high fever? Was it something like, was it psychosomatic? You know, was she just trying to exert some kind of control? We don't know. She was a complex person. Most good, interesting people are. Yes. Another woman who, oh my gosh, we're back to describe as frail. So Mary Anning 
who's more late Regency. Um, she was a frail, quiet little infant. And then, swear to God, this is what people said. They swore it was true. She was a baby, and these two women were hanging out with her under a tree, and one of the women was holding the baby, and the tree got hit by lightning. And the two women died, but the baby survived. And from that moment forward, she was no longer frail. She had fantastic health. What? Yep, that's what okay. they said. Okay. That is what they said. Believe it if you dare. So after she had her entire personality changed due to lightning strike, Mary Anning became this early paleontologist. And a fun factoid is that Mary Anning lived in Lyme Regis, which is this kind of beach resort town in England. Mm -hmm. And Jane Austen used to go there. And Jane Austen set some of her books there. And Jane Austen tried to buy a cabinet from Mary Anning's father. He was a curio cabinet maker. And she complained that he overcharged. There you go. The more you know. Wow. Yeah. So there's no word on if Mary and Jane actually met each other. But I, for some reason, that totally cracks me up. I, I find that incredibly satisfying. So, yeah. So Mary Anning um, was this, like, totally amazing paleontologist. But... She had a really hard time with the establishment because she was a woman. She couldn't be a member of the Geological Society uh, or any of those things. And uh, so her life is very complex. And it involves a lot of this sort of tension between these men who totally respected her and felt very indebted to her. And yet, she could not get in the door. Of course. And, and the deal back then was that if you found a fossil... You found the fossil, you cleaned it, you identified it, you might have sketched it, you studied it, and then you sold it to some man. And then the man would present your work at, under his name. Of course. Because he had bought it. And, and that wasn't considered plagiarism. That was like part of the sale. Which is part of the inspiration of the plot for Tessa Dare's A Week to be Wicked. Yes, because which they, I adore, by the way. It's those Weird. that that whole series just makes me happy. But in yeah. that one, the heroine has found a fossil and she's trying to bring a plaster cast of it, and she needs a dude to travel with her for propriety's sake because she can't travel by herself. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, she doesn't quite have any idea how she's going to get in the door and make her presentation, but she's going to do it. She doesn't know how, she's, but it will happen. She's just going to stand on the doorway, as I recall, with her fossil until somebody lets her in. I, Which I sounds like a perfectly legitimate plan. It's a really great book, so people should go read it. And I want to say anything about the ending because then people might not read it. But people yes. should read it because it was really fun. Oh, it's adorable. I love that book. Road trip. Road trip. Road trip. Oh, and Elise made me read What a Wallflower Wants. And she never even mentioned that the whole plot revolves around the difference agent. She didn't tell you that part? She didn't tell me that. <laughs> she said, you know, reminded her of Tom Hiddleston. So she had me right there. Like, of course I'm going to read it. But yeah, <laughs> you would think she would have mentioned that little detail. You you must she, have been so very pleased. Oh, my God. I, like, let out this little scream. I was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Different engine. Different engine. Yeah, that was pretty exciting. So... Yeah, so Mary Anning, great paleontologist. It was just, like, if you Google in Wikipedia, I'm not proud. I, I use Wikipedia as my starting place and frequently my finishing place. And 
And um, if you Google Victorian female scientists in Wikipedia, you will get like 150 names. Wow. And that's just Wikipedia. I mean, it, it, was, it was a crazy time for sciences. The Victorian era is just so fascinating. And what women were doing is so fascinating. And I, I had really assumed that women who did these unconventional things had to be rich. Uh, and some of them were, but a lot of them weren't. The aquarium, you know, like your home aquarium with your, you know, like guppies in it and stuff. Of course. That, that was invented by a woman in 1794. Uh, she was the daughter of a shoemaker, and then she became a dressmaker, and she kind of worked her way up. Uh, she designed the wedding dress for Princess Caroline, and then she made a very advantageous marriage, but not into the nobility, but into, like, you know, middle class. So she ended up moving with her husband to Sicily, and she wanted to study the behavior of nautiluses in controlled environments, so she invented the aquarium. Like, like you do. Does. Like you do, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so like, she she was somebody who, you know, and, and I mean, the extreme example of that, of course, is Sarah Breedlove, who, you know, not to, not to minimize the impact of poverty, which was a horrible problem in the Victorian era, but they, people were so amazingly resourceful in terms of how they did what they wanted to do, mm-hmm. you know, they would find ways. That if it wasn't uh, there, they would figure out a way to make it or invent it. Make it or invent it. Margaret Knight invented the paper bag folding machine. If you pack your kids' lunches, you know, like in a paper bag, and now we all use these fancy lunch boxes, but, you know, in my day, we used a little paper bag. That was invented by a factory worker. And the first thing she invented, she worked in a textile factory, and she invented a device that would make machinery automatically turn off if something was caught in it. Whoa. Wow. Like, if you read anything about the industrial age, you know that, like, that I can't even imagine how many lives that device might have saved if it was widely put in use because the machinery would spin really fast and people used to get their, their dresses caught in it, their sleeves, their hair. Yep. Take the top of your head off. Like, they were the, it, horrible, horrible injuries. Just get mangled. So she invented this device that would automatically shut off. And then she went on from that to invent the paper bag folding machine. And she had a hard time securing the patent because the guy took her to court and he claimed it was his invention. And the only evidence he had that it was his invention was he said it couldn't be her invention because she was a woman and women, women don't invent things. But she won her case because she was awesome. Whoa. Yep. That's just how she rolled. So do you ever see shades of these people in, in the uh, romances that you read? Well, I do. There's like, so I, I kind of feel like I've been neglecting my original mission was to write a lot about science fiction and fantasy romance, which I'm still doing. But I, I like, don't think you're neglecting that. So no worries, okay. dude. Okay, good. Because like sometimes I'm like, man, I'm really reading a lot of stuff that's like historical and contemporary now. But there's there's like a whole subgenre of the subgenre with the the scientist um, the scientist main character, and sometimes it's male and sometimes it's female, and they're really really fun. I mean, a lot of times they're they're either they're they're more um, 
optimistic maybe than they should be but then you know you look at history and there's lots of people who had great successes you know Maggie Knight won her case yep yeah she made a fair little boodle off of that paper bag folding machine um oh and I'll tell people who are listening if you google paper bag folding machine Smithsonian there's a model of it is so pretty whoa Really? It's like this beautiful, it looks like steampunk. I mean, it's just this gorgeously crafted device. Have you been to the Smithsonian to see the model? I've never been to the Smithsonian ever. Yeah, me neither. I suck that way. But you're close, right? Ish. Uh, it's like five hours. Oh, okay. But that's like a doable thing. Yeah, it's a doable thing. Eventually you I'll bring it. the kids. You got to go. I've never been. I would love to go. I'm dying to go to the Smithsonian someday. Uh, but yeah, I, I really love that in romances. And I, I, um, it's a big catnip thing for me. If, if any of the main characters is sciency. And especially if, if there's some attention paid to how that affects how they see the world and how they think. Um, because I'm married to a scientist, and you know what? They see the world in a very unique way. Really? Yeah, like all my husband's friends are scientists, and he's a scientist. And they, you know, they, they, it's, it's not the, like the absent-minded professor kind of way of seeing the world. It's just a way of seeing the world where you think about it in very analytical, precise terms. Right. You know, and now I'm trying to think of a of a romance that has a really good example of that because I know there's some where I felt like they really got it right. Sometimes let's just say, well, this person is into science, you know, and then that kind of falls by the wayside. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, the the Tessa Dare one you were talking about. Yep, that's definitely true. Yeah, I mean, he they talk he talks about that a lot. That affects how she sees the world. Um, oh, oh, there was one. Oh, it'll come to me, and I'll hop on the comments and say. It was this one. <laughs> Shoot. Okay, this is now like a, a habo. It was. <laughs> Those always work out very well. What are the details? Oh, well, the guy. Oh, my God. Like, now my head hurts. The, the guy was the scientist, and he was a naturalist, and he had just come back from one expedition and he wanted to go out on another expedition but he needed funding so he had to marry rich and the woman was had just gotten through some kind of awful scandal and she had to marry rich and they meet each other at this garden party weekend thing you know like regency romances thrive on and this is a little this is more victorian but you know the same thing so it's a house party, so that everyone's thrown together, right? And they both have this mission. They're both going to marry rich, and they decide they're going to help each other marry rich. But, of course, they fall in love with each other, but they can't be together. I wrote a review of it. Dang it. I'll find it. I'll find it. It's not a habo, because I'll find it. Because, I, I mean, I wrote about the dang thing. But what I loved about it was that the, the woman grows so much to appreciate how the guy who's the scientist in the story sees the world and that changes the way she sees the world and I found that to be very true of even though my husband's personality is very different from the hero's personality Mm -hmm. that way of looking at things was very true to my experience and the way that being around that that attitude every day has shifted the way I look at things Um, 
because I'm interested in science in a much more superficial, tangential way, you know, and I don't feel like it's shaped my brain the way it shapes my husband's brain or that of his friends. I mean, they have a whole different way they look at things, and it is, it's really fascinating. Huh. So I'll, I'll figure out what that book was, and I'll tell you, and it'll mess up the whole flow of the podcast, and now everybody's, like, falling asleep, but oh, it's, <laughs> it's killing me. Ah, I'll figure it out. Don't worry. I think I wrote a whole review. Maybe it was a joint review. Okay, anyway, on to other things. But it was a great example. I'll find it. I'll tell you. It'll, you, can, you can add a little addendum. What are it some was, of your favorite scientists or science-y romance novels? Well, that was one. And that was I definitely one, right? Of it. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm not good at, like, the... You know, like I can think of twenty tonight, but now I oh, can't. Oh, of course, you always you always remember them when you uh, when you when you when you ask the question, you remember later. I did a, a spot for a, a very brief interview for Sirius Radio that's going to be on tonight, and I did it on Friday. And of course, they asked me for some recommendations for historical romance, and I came up with a few. And then as I was walking down the street to the bus station to go home, I was like, oh, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. I think the French call it the spirit of the stairway, l'esprit d'escalier, oh, yeah. where, you, where you remember what you yeah. wanted to say while you're on the stairways, like leaving. Yeah, that happens yeah. to me all the time. Well, I mean, this is my job. This is what I do for you. Is <laughs> I review science fiction and fantasy romance, science and kind of geeky nonfiction, and historical or contemporary romance if it has some kind of geek angle, okay? This is my job. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. What have I read? Like, okay, um, oh, one that was just kind of goofy was that, I think it's the Laura Kinsale, Midsummer, is it Midsummer Moon? With the hedgehog, the woman that has the pet hedgehog. It was adorable. And, and it was not particularly insightful into how the scientific brain works. I can tell you that my husband has never brought home a pet hedgehog or tried to build an airship in our family room. But it was just really cute. You know, they took, like, the absent-minded scientist idea and, like, turned it up to 11 and made the woman the absent-minded scientist. And, yeah. and the guys just kind of trying to keep up. And it was really cute. <laughs> And one, there was a contemporary that I read, which again, now I can't remember the name of because, like, I need help. But, but I will, and I'll, I'll email you and tell you what it was. But it was really controversial because the, the, the female character was the scientist in this one. And she, but then it turned out that the guy was also pretty sciencey. He was really into math. Um, and she had uh, Asperger's. And... It was interesting because I read it at the same time that we read The Rosie Project, which I also loved, in which case the man has Asperger's. And a lot of readers loved The Rosie Project and did not find the portrayal of the scientists with Asperger's at all offensive. But when the woman had Asperger's, they were offended because they thought that she was like a stereotype of if you're a woman and you're a scientist and you're also socially inept. Hmm. But I really admired her because I felt like it gave this portrayal of how she was able to kind of work through any social difficulties that she had to have this kind of full, well-rounded life. And I liked the way that she thought about science and she didn't have to give up her career. There was, you know, and one of her worries was if she got involved, she would take less time off of her career. And the guy was like, are you kidding? No, your career is super important. And what you do is also part of who you are. 
Right. I mean, he actually made the adjustments around her career instead of the other way around. There was definitely some give and take, but he's, you know, he's the one who really shifted things so that she could keep doing what she did. I loved that book. I'll, I'll figure out the name of it, because I, I, that's another one where I wrote the review, but now I can't remember the title. Because <sighs> I have that absent-minded thing going, too. Um, which is why I'm not very good at podcasts. Sorry, everybody. I can't remember my own name. Uh, I, I, yeah, I really liked that one. And I, I, liked, the, I liked the science in um, His Road Home, which I've talked about like 500 times because yep. I told about that book, yes. But again, the science was not a huge part of the story, but in a way that was kind of cool because she was just out there doing science. Like, that's just what she did. Mm-hmm. And that's another one where there was never any discussion that she would back down from it. He's the one who kind of accommodates his life to fit into hers, right. you know, with enough give and take that it doesn't feel icky, you know. And, uh, you know, uh, I liked how she described a lot of the science she was doing was actually kind of tedious. She was um, spotting orcas, not those kind of orcas, Elise, calm down. And they were... <laughs> <laughs> Boring orcas, not sexy orcas, and 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 um, she had to like identify them by the markings on their tail, you know, which involves a lot of excitement, but also involves a lot of busy work and physical discomfort and Stuff. hours and hours of looking at pictures, and you know, they kind of address that a little bit. So yeah, I like that. Cool. So what else are you reading right now? Okay, well, like. Literally, as you called, I finished uh, As You Wish by Carrie, how do you say his last name? Always? Always? The guy that was in Princess Bride. I think it's Elvis. Elvis. Okay. So anyway, he wrote a really cute memoir about the Princess Bride. I as was You Wish. At, as You Wish. At one point, I thought that I would review it, but now I realize that my review would be like super short. So I'll just tell you guys now. It's really cute. If you're not into the Princess Bride then there's nothing for you. If you are into The Princess Bride, you'll eat it up like candy. But what he really wants you to know is that making The Princess Bride was the best thing ever and everyone in The Princess Bride was the best person ever and it was like so fabulous. By page 54, I was already a little exhausted. <laughs> he's like, oh my God, and Andre the Giant is like, he's like, he's like a giant. He's He's just so big, and he's, he's really sweet. And Robin, oh my God, she's so beautiful, intelligent, and beautiful. And Mandy Patinkin, wow, I mean, he's this amazingly talented guy. And, <laughs> and, and, it's just like, and I think he's sincere, which makes it kind of cute. But I'm like, there's really no narrative tension here, is there? No, everything. <laughs> everything is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're into Princess Bride, you'll love it. If you're not, it's not like you're going to get like a huge insight into the movie making business. You're just going to know that everything is awesome. Yes, of course. And it's very sweet. And it has little parts where people kind of add in their two cents from other people from the movie. And that's really sweet, you know. But really, like, that's, that's my review. It's really sweet. That's it. So the behind <laughs> the scenes isn't so much dishy behind the scenes as it is just... Gushing, gushing, glorious, so sweet-filled yes. behind the scenes, and it feels really sincere, which makes it sweet. But again, not you know terribly fascinating unless you're into the Princess Bride. Which I'm sorry if you're not into the Princess Bride. <laughs> why are you even listening to me talk? Seriously, like <laughs> I have nothing to say. 
the Princess Bride is just the mom. But, uh, oh, there's a lot of Andre the Giant stories. Because apparently he used to drink a lot. Because he was so big, he could drink vast amounts of alcohol. Yes. Uh, yes. I believe uh, I also read somewhere that he was in considerable amounts of physical pain most of the time. Yes. And he they, may have been drinking to self-medicate. They talk about that a lot, too. And that is the sad part of the book is where they talk about how much pain he was in and how he would work past the pain and also just what a really sweet guy he was. The closest thing to tension in the story is that the, uh, there's a lot of funny stories about Andre the Giant and there's a lot of sad stuff about Andre the Giant. So, and sometimes they're the same story. Aww. So at one point he like drank so much that he passed out in the lobby of this hotel but then nobody could wake him up and nobody could move him because he was so big. <laughs> he was so big. Right. So what they ended up doing was getting those velvet ropes, you know, like they used to barricade stuff off in a fancy place. And they put them all around him with this little velvet rope fence. No. Until he woke up on his own the next day. Oh, roped off Andre. I know. Ex Funny and super, super sad at the same time. Wow. Yeah, so that's the, the, the closest we come to sad stories. But so your, your micro-review of this is super cute, sweet. way adorable, way yeah. enjoyable for anyone who liked The Princess Bride. Yeah, but it's not one of those crossover appeal books. Like, like there are movies I have no desire to see or that I've seen but didn't like, but I can read about how the movie was made and be really interested in that process. This isn't one of those books. It's, it's not that in-depth. I mean, there are some interesting things about how they made the movie, but I would say it's not a big crossover appeal kind of book. Very much for the fans. Right. You know, which but, works for me because I'm a fan. So I read it in like five minutes. I just went chomp and gobbled it right up. Right. And, and that movie is, is very, very long lasting. Yeah. Like I've watched that with my kids and they were like, that was awesome. Can we watch it again? And they don't believe me that it's very, very much older than they are. No, my daughter loves it. When, and he does talk a little bit about the problems they had with marketing the movie. It, it was mm -hmm. respectable in the box office, but not a big hit by any means. Uh, it, it didn't bomb, but it wasn't that great. And it wasn't really till it hit VHS mm -hmm. that it went kaboom. And suddenly, you know, it became this huge cult hit. You know, and another thing that's nice is that a lot of the actors, you know, everywhere they go, people come up to Mandy Patinkin and say, you kill my father, prepare to die. You know, Carrie always can't order anything without the waitress saying, as you wish, you know. Of course. And you would think that would get old, but if it does, they don't admit to it. They're like, no, it's, I'm really proud to be part of this. And, uh, you know, when people come up and they say, would you say this line? I just say the line. And it makes them really happy. And it makes me happy that I'm part of their lives in a meaningful way. I was watching an interview with Jay Baruchel, who does the voice of Hiccup for the Dragon series, which I love. Oh. And he was saying about something about how he knows how much of a part of people's lives the movies have become. And if he had to retire tomorrow, he would be satisfied because he was part of it. Oh. Just having done that role, he could retire tomorrow and it, we would still consider his career success because he had that much of an impact on so many people through doing one voice for two movies. Oh, that's I awesome. know. Squeaky. Well, and the cartoons, you know, which he and the girl that plays Astrid, I think they've talked about how they do the voices for the cartoons. Yes. So by the time they did the second movie. America Ferrera, yes. Yeah, America Ferrera. They had, they had kind of grown a relationship just from doing the voices. Even if they didn't do the voice work together, mm -hmm. they kind of heard each other's work. So that's part of why that, that, 
relationship feels so solid in the second movie. I learned later that the scene where in the beginning where he's mapping and she lands on the island and he tells her that his father wants him to become chief. They did that in the same room because she had to develop her imitation of him and she was nervous about doing it in front of him. So all of that stuff, like, what are you doing with my arms? I don't do that. And she's like, you just did that. That's all real. Oh, I love that. I know. I love it too. It's when, when I learn about the voice actors behind the scenes, improvising things that become part of the character. Oh, that just gives me the happy, happy yeah. glow. <laughs> well, you know, Carrie never became like the princess bright guy. He never became like a huge A-list actor, but he's works steadily all Since the time. Then, yes. And he something. has the and- worst the worst, like it might even be worse than Dick Van Dyke's English accent in Mary Poppins, the worst Southern accent in Twister. Oh God, yes. Oh my God, it's because so I, bad. Well, part of how he got the job in, in in Princess Bride is that he actually is English, so he could do an English accent. They really wanted someone who wouldn't fake it. But he says in the book, he's like, you know, Twister was a big blockbuster, so was Days of Thunder, Glory got tons of award and great critical stuff. Even Saw is now a big cult classic, but no one's going to remember me for that stuff. They're going to remember me for The Princess Bride, and I'm fine with that. Yep. He's oh, like, and also Men awesome. in Tights. Don't forget that one. Men in Tights. He did not mention Men in Tights, but I'm like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll remember you for that too, sweetie. Yeah. Like, you know, but it's nice that he doesn't act like he resents that legacy. He's like, you know, no, this, this, I'm cool with that. I'm really happy to be part of that. That's very excellent. So, so what else are you reading that you totally, totally recommend for other people? Or have you okay, read recently? So I just finished. So Elise is apparently my new crack dealer. So I just <laughs> Elise, Which is funny because a lot of what she reads I would totally hate. But then every now and then she's like, hey, Carrie. I've You're going to like this. You're going to like this. Meet me in the back parking lot at midnight. Yes. You know, the unmarked bills. So, What a Wallflower Wants by Maya Rodale, or Rodale, R-O-D-A-L-E. Rodale. Anyway, Maya uh, yeah, Rodale. she was right. I loved it. You should all read it. She did a review for Smart Bitches. Mm-hmm. It was an A+. Plus. It's fantastic. Um, loved it. And she also got me started on the Dresden Files. Thanks, Elise, for ruining my life. There's like 13 books in that damn series. So, I just finished the fourth book which is Summer Night in the Dresden Files series by Jim Butcher. And yes, I totally adore it. So anyone who follows me on Twitter will know when I'm reading a Dresden Files book because I start tweeting about it. Um, So yeah, Summer Night was great. And then I just finished uh, As You Wish about five seconds before you called me. And then I believe my next exciting read is Silver Wine by Tina Connolly, which I'm very excited about. Because that's the conclusion to her trilogy that started with um, kind of this takeoff of Jane Eyre and ended up becoming a whole different thing. Uh, it's a very, very cool series. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Awesome. Oh, and I did finish reading Bollywood Affair, and I'm very excited about November Book Club. On the 18th? On the 18th. Yes, I'm- the author is going to be there, and I think I will be ordering Indian Takeout. Yes, I think I'm going to have to because I was so hungry when I read that book. Oh, my God, I know. I I found a recipe for um, Indian butter chicken in the pressure cooker. And I'm thinking I might need to make that and test it out and then just order in some samosas so that I have everything I need. 
Oh my god, the scene in the kitchen with the rolling out the yeah, I And they're lot. competing about their technique, their cooking technique. Yeah. Oh. And he's like, Yes, I'm so sexist that I'm making samosas for your wedding. Yes. <laughs> oh my I know. She's like, That doesn't count. <laughs> and you know what? I hated the beginning of it. I was like, This is gonna be a sucky book. I hate this guy. They can't redeem this guy. He's sexy jerk. Ew. Surprise. He's so creepy. Yeah, so, yeah, so that was fantastic. Loved it, loved it, loved it. So, yeah, I've been on this, like, very satisfying reading kick lately. Um, I have another Victorian lined up. I'm going to be reading a, a Victorian that is from the Victorian era, written in the Victorian, called Miss Cayley's Adventures, about a woman who rides her bicycle all over Victorian England. I'm very excited about that. That sounds fun. I know. So the author is Grant Allen, A-L-L-E-N. So uh, that should be very cool. So, yeah. Awesome. That's what's going on. So I'm like kind of wedging in the Dresden Files books whenever I can fit them in between other stuff that I actually have to read. And, and um, I'm really digging them. That's really awesome. The only thing I don't like about Dresden Files is that I do like resolution, and Dresden Files is obviously just going to go on and on, like, forever. Uh, and so, you know, I do like, one of the things I like about standalone novels, and, you know, of course, romance novels are quite famous for this, is that you get a resolution at the end. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's never going to resolve. That's one of the things that I tell people when they when they when they ask me generally about romances and I'm like it's not about sex it's not specifically about anything that you know there's there's no set of things that have to happen but we are reading for the ending. Right. You, if yeah. if the ending isn't there we need to know in advance. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean that there's a lot of things that I read that end really unhappily and and often I'm okay with that. But as long as it's not marketed to me as something that will end happily. Right. Like I was once pitched a book and I was like, well, it's it's like a romance. And I was like, oh, okay, it's like a romance. The hero fucking died at the end. I was so pissed. Not only because I had invested so much in the relationship and I thought it was lovely, but that I had been lied to. Oh, that's bad. Yeah. When you don't I mean, fulfill so- the contract that the reader expects, it's yeah. bad. I would tell people if they're going to write a tragic love story and they don't want people to know it's tragic, tell them it's a love story. Don't tell them it's a romance. Yep, yep, yep. Because, because I'm used to the concept of a tragic love story. So if someone says it's a love story, I won't necessarily assume that it's going to end okay. But of if course. you say it's, it's a romance or particularly it's a romance novel, then you're making me this promise and you can't break the promise. Uh, Dresden Files is emphatically not a romance novel, even mm-hmm. though there is some romance in it. So I'm like, I just sense doom all over it. And I'm a little worried about Harry Dresden because I feel like he's not eating enough and <laughs> go over and make him some nourishing soup or something. I don't know. You need to cook for him? Yeah. Well, you know what though, in the, in the last, in the last book, it was really heartwarming. I won't tell you which book I read that ended this way. And one of the books that I read, it was really heartwarming because brownies came over and they cleaned his house and they like stocked his kitchen with really healthy food. And you have no idea how much better I felt after I read that. Aww. I was like, it's okay. He's got food. Yeah. It's fine. He has, yeah. he has vegetables. Yeah. He's going to be okay. Yeah. It's not that I eat all that healthy myself, but I'm like that magic has got to really deplete the energy. Like, yeah, like I'm, I'm like a mom all the time. It never turns off. So now I'm, I'm worried about his 
his nutrient level. Aw, poor he guy. He vitamins. Harry Dresden, take your vitamins? Yes, he needs a good, solid multivitamin. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm obviously, I think our readers can tell, possibly slightly over-invested in the Dresden Files. Just, Thank you, Elise, who just is a little. my life. Yeah, Elise. We should do a podcast where we get both of you on the phone and then you can just yell at her. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and then she'll be like, oh, yeah, well, you're the one who keeps getting me to knit stuff. And I'll be like, yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I don't think so. I uh, I always love doing the podcast. I will find out what book that is. And uh, if you can't remember, I can leave it in the podcast as a habo, and people will tell you what it is. And they'll say, yes, you wrote the review, dumb shit. <laughs> I did. It's a book I actually reviewed. So, yes, I'm actually kind of embarrassed. Oh, dude, but don't be embarrassed. My whole life is a habo. I don't remember any authors or titles. When someone emails me and says, I can't remember this book, but it's this, this, and this happens, and I actually remember the title and the author, I need yeah. to go like sit down for a while in a quiet room because the shock is too much for me. Oh, my gosh. That yeah. never happens. Never. Yeah. So seriously, well, I, don't worry. I, I will find it. I will find it now. I'm like, God, what was it? Did it have a butterfly in the title? There was something about a butterfly, and there was something about a spider, and... It was like a blue dress and, you know, like, ha, ah, it's, oh, it's not even on the tip of my tongue. It's in my brain right between my eyes. <laughs> I know exactly how you like, feel. Laser focus. Anyway, I'll find it and then I'll be able to sleep at night. So that'll be good. So I hope you like long things because this was a long episode, but there wasn't really a good place to cut it in two. So I hope you enjoyed the extended extra long turgid, I'm going to stop now, edition of the DBSA podcast. Thank you to Carrie for sitting down with me for so long and having a very fun discussion. During the podcast, you may have noticed, especially at the end of the year, that Carrie was like, I know these books and I can't remember and I reviewed them. And then she emailed me later. So if you've been yelling at your iPod or your car stereo or, you know, gesturing wildly with your headphones on, the books that she was talking about were Girl Least Likely to Marry by Amy Andrews and Like No Other Lover by Julia Ann Long. That's the Victorian one. And as usual, I will have links to all of these books in the podcast entry, as well as links to some of the people that she mentioned. I'm going to start with Wikipedia, and if you want to go from there, there are plenty of sources at the bottom of each Wikipedia entry, and you can explore the internet, because that's what it's for. Also, Madam C.J. Walker is totally awesome, and the Pittsburgh Public Schools were totally awesome for having her as part of my elementary school curriculum, because I didn't realize how awesome that was until now, and now I'm fully in awe of the awesomeness. But then... I was a pretty big fan of Pittsburgh Public Schools. And also, since my sister teaches there, I kind of have to be. So anyway, thank you very much for listening. You can subscribe to our feed. You can hope the feed works soon. We're honestly working on that, and I apologize. You can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. And you can leave comments on the podcast about what you would like us to do next or who you might like us to interview. We have a bunch of other things set up for the future, but if you have ideas, we want to hear them. This podcast is brought to you by Berkeley, publisher of Romancing the Billionaire, the sizzling, 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 do things have to be sizzling? I'm not actually very good at saying the word sizzling. I just want you to know that. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to leave this in because you know what? 
<laughs> it's been that kind of day. Ahem. The sizzling, sizzling new billionaire boys club novel from New York Times bestselling author Jessica Clare. And thank you to Berkeley for sponsoring the podcast. And I'm going to try really hard to learn how to say the word sizzling better. And if you're listening to the music and you're thinking, damn it, it is not Christmas, you're right, it is not. But I totally watched a set of time-lapse GIF sets of people removing all of the Halloween decorations and adding all of the Christmas decorations to the Magic Kingdom in Florida, and I was like, wow. You know, it's a little early for Christmas, but still, that was amazing. So this is Three Ships by Deviations Project, one of my favorite pieces of music that Sassy Outwater has provided. You can find her on Twitter, at Sassy Outwater, and you can find this song on their album, Adeste Fiddles, because what else would it be called? And I'll have links to the music, and I'll probably play this track again closer to the holidays. But if you were thinking, oh my gosh, early Christmas decorations, especially if, like me, you're Jewish, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's almost like a whole month and a more away. Oi, this track is not so bad. I have a little good Christmassy parts. And this is plenty of me talking. I don't think anyone needs anything more from me. So on behalf of Jane and Carrie, all of the lovely people at Berkeley, all of the Adeste Fiddle, Sassy Outwater, Deviations Project, and anyone else who is behind me at this moment, which is both of my dogs and one cat, we wish you a very, very good weekend with the very best of reading. Thank you for listening.